Hey, welcome to the Successfully Unemployed Show. I'm Dustin Heiner, and I'm here to help you learn how to quit that J-O-B, that just over rogue job, by any means possible. It could be having a side hustle, it could be a freelancer, it could be writing books, could even be in the stock market. And today, we're going to be talking with somebody who is an expert in buying and trading stocks, but then at the same time was able to quit his job and now trains and teaches people how to do the exact same thing that he does. All right, let's start the show. Welcome to the Successfully Unemployed Show, the place where ordinary people become extraordinary by finding the path to financial freedom through entrepreneurship, side hustles, and passive income. We've already blazed the path, showing you how to retire early and have financial independence so you will never work for someone else again. And now, here's your host, Dustin Heiner. So today I brought on an expert who's going to show us how he has done it. I have Kenny Polkari coming on. Kenny, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm not so sure I'm an expert, but we're going to try. I already know you're an expert, so we're going to jump right into it. So Kenny, how do you make money for your family without working that J-O-B, working for somebody else, making sure that you have a paycheck? I've done that over the course of time, right? Over the course of history, and I kind of built my network, and I worked hard for the years that I was working. I worked hard. I built a network. I nurtured that network. And so when it came time for me to make that decision and jump ship and say, you know, I'm done with this. Now I'm going to go on and do what I want to do on my own terms, make money my own way. I had those nurtured relationships to kind of fall back on and to reach out to. That's really the key, right? Along the way, not burning bridges, not kicking people when they're down just to try to climb up the ladder, but to nurture every relationship and really not knowing. I think think one of the important keys is is not knowing which relationship in the end is going to be the one that becomes the most valuable to you, right? Sometimes you think, sometimes you'd be surprised at the relationships that are more valuable than the ones that you thought were going to be the valuable ones. And so with those relationships, what do you do? I mean, they don't just give you money, that correct? No, 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 no. So so in my case, I provide a service to them, right? I consult in the financial services space. I consult in the fintech space. I do some public speaking. I do education, but I do it all at my own pace, right? I took my 40 years worth of, or 37 years worth of institutional and the financial services business experience and took all those lessons I learned, some good, some bad. You know, listen, I'm not saying I didn't make mistakes along the way. Everyone makes mistakes along the way, but I took all those lessons. And then, and then when it was time to jump, I just, I had confidence in myself that I was going to be able to do it. I think it's a little bit nerve wracking when you try to do that or when you consider doing it, because you go from this little cocoon of, okay, you feel safe because you have a job and every two weeks you're going to get a paycheck and you know everyone's going to take care of you to, to then jumping and saying, you know what, screw it, I'm, I'm doing my own thing. The interesting part in there is, is building up the confidence in yourself to finally do it. Because part of my problem is I should have done it 10 years ago, but I was having trouble building up the confidence and we can talk about that. Absolutely. And one of my favorite quotes ever is, or it's a quote, it's a proverb, basically. When is the best time to plant a tree? Well, it's 20 years ago. The next best time is today. So you better get started today. So Kenny, you're you're working normally, working for other people, then you're building up networks and you're deciding to take the leap to actually do it. Was that nerve wracking to actually 
you know, go from working for somebody else to actually saying, I'm going to make my own rules, I'm going to make my own hours and create my own business. Was that rough? And then what made that transition to where you could actually do it? I think psychologically, it was more difficult than actually it was, right? Which is interesting, because I spent a lot of time, you know, challenging myself before I did it, you know, trying to line up, trying to make sure everything was perfect, trying to say, okay, this is exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be step one, step two, step three. And what I realized was when I did it, all those steps that I outlined and everything I said was going to happen this way didn't happen that way at all. And it doesn't mean that I was wrong or I planned it wrong or I did it wrong. It's just that it comes together as it comes together, right? You can't necessarily, when you, you know, if you were jumping from one job to another job, you know what to expect. But when you're jumping from a job to no job, right? You're essentially unemployed at the moment. You don't really know what the next step is. And so it kind of evolves. And I think that's what people really need to understand. You have to be willing to let it evolve. Might take a little bit longer than you thought, or it might happen sooner than you thought, but it needs to organically evolve. And then what ends up happening is, you know, you meet people along the way, uh, very much like you, that uh, or or other people that you've interviewed that have done the same thing. You know, I, it was for me, it was very myopic when I worked in the job that I had in New York for thirty seven years. You know, I was in that job. I was focused. That was it. I didn't realize there are as many people out there as there are that have gone through this process and finally said, you know what, screw it. And they pick up and they and they create their own life. They create a new life. And it's all very exciting. I've actually met some really interesting people that have done it, you included, right? You and I ran into each other uh, at an event that I would never have been at. But I was at that podcasting event because the podcasting is another one of those verticals which which happened to evolve, right? I didn't think about, when I left the job I had, I, I didn't say, okay, podcasting will be one of the things I do. Not at all. That has kind of evolved over the last year and a half. And then boom, I end up at this conference. I meet you. I met a bunch of other people, all very interesting, all very dynamic, all very exciting. And so that actually helps to build your own confidence level, right? Me, whatever the person, your own confidence level, because you actually see other people that not only are doing it, but are doing it successfully on their own terms. And I think that's uh, one of the key benefits. And it sounds like you and I are very, very similar in a, in a sense. And I think a lot of people listening and watching this on YouTube, they are the type that we're just going to get it done. We know we want to not work for somebody else. We want to have our own business, be a freelancer, whatever it might be. But we are going to basically plow through and make sure we get it done, whatever means possible. Networking is a fantastic way that I know that I've built all my businesses. It's through right. networking. Okay. So Kenny, so you do public speaking, you do consulting, you also do, what else is it that you do? I do education in the financial services space. I'm a, I'm a chief market strategist at a billion dollar plus wealth management firm located down here in Florida. So I represent them at industry events, at conferences. I also advise individuals on wealth strategies, on wealth planning, on putting a plan together, on understanding how to put the plan together, right? But I do it all on my own terms. I don't work for somebody I don't have a nine to five job. I have an eight o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock in the afternoon job if I want it. I got nine to three if I want it. Some days I don't go in at all because I don't need to, right? Because I've built up these different revenue lines. And as long as I'm in control of them and I have organized myself correctly, it's easy. So it sounds like you have a base understanding, skill, experience, but you have a base understanding in 
financial services. Like somebody can't just say, well, you know, I'm going to be like Kenny and I'm just going to start consulting. Well, if you don't have any financial services background, you don't know anything about finances or economics or literally anything like that, you can't do that. So would you suggest that somebody, like if I were to be like you, where I want to consult, I want to public speak, I want to be on the board, I want to do all this sort of things. Should I follow in your lead and just jump into financial services or should I maybe find what I'm really good at and what I've experienced in? How does that play out? Well, so you should, I would advise that you're going to, you're going to do what I'm doing and you're going to consult or you're going to, you're going to add value in an area where either you excel or that you've got your experience or that you are very interested. Look, in my case, I spent 37 years in the financial services industry as a member of the New York Stock Exchange. I was right there, right in the thick of it. My clients were all institutional uh, uh, asset managers around the country and in parts of Europe, right? So they were hedge funds, mutual funds, pension plans, foundations. They weren't Joe Q public, you know, with $50,000 or $150,000 or a million dollars to invest. They were institutions that had millions, if not billions of dollars under management that needed to be allocated and invested in stocks. And I was the guy that you would see if you watched CNBC or Fox Business News and you, they were on the floor of the exchange. One of those guys running around screaming and yelling, you're right in the thick of it. And that 37 years of experience gave me uh, the opportunity of a lifetime, right? Because I built my management skills. I nurtured my network. I got involved in the institution, meaning the New York Stock Exchange Institution. I didn't work for the exchange. I worked on the exchange. I had my own business, right? I built my own business, but I nurtured those relationships. And it was over time. So you're proverb at, at the very beginning, when's a good time to plant a tree? Well, 20 years ago or today, that's right. But if I planted the tree 37 years ago and it took time to grow, but ultimately 37 years later, it was a strong tree with deep roots that I felt would support me if I jumped ship, right? The, the tree wasn't going to fall over is the point. That's great. And you're basically taking your life's work and utilizing that to help other people on your own terms. Like you said, I love literally not having anything. Like if I have a calendar of a week of my calendar, it's literally blank. I love having nothing on my calendar. I could go to lunch with the family. I can go play golf. I could literally do whatever I want because that's my own terms. I've taken everything that I've learned to be where I now make money from that. And it sounds like that's the, the best direction that you're suggesting is take what we know and then figure out as we build that foundation and have years and years of experience in networking, we can then turn that into consulting or public speaking or things like that. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, that's how it's worked for me, right? I've taken that all those all those relationships that I nurtured over time. I was involved in financial services industry since 1980, right? I went to the floor of the exchange at 19 years old. On really on a whim, I had this opportunity. I'm not a kid from New York. I wasn't in that business. I was a kid from Boston. I was going to college. I get this opportunity to go intern on the floor of the exchange in 1980. And I scratch my head and say, why the hell would I want to do that? It made no sense to me. I'd never been to New York City. Why would I go to New York City in the summertime? I mean, in my mind, I was going back to Cape Cod and I was going to be a lifeguard on the beach at 19 years old, right? And here's also a life lesson that I think people need to understand because it's so true. I almost said no to that opportunity. In fact, I did say no to the opportunity. And then I thought about it and I kind of re retracted you know, the no. I called, I called up the guy who offered me the position. I said, okay, listen, I, I, I thought about this again. Maybe I want to try it. And I'm lucky he said, okay, come on down, because he could have said, screw you. You already said no to me. I hired somebody else. But in fact, he didn't. I moved to New York in the summer of 1980. I was 19 years old, and uh, 
I went to work on the New York Stock Exchange, and from the minute I walked through the door at the exchange, I could feel this energy, and I could feel this excitement that existed nowhere else in the world, in, as far as I was concerned, nowhere else. And I was there for about three or four weeks during the summer from May. It was like probably mid-June, and my head just exploded with excitement about, oh, my God, this is the greatest place. Like the passion inside got lit, and all of a sudden I was on fire, right? And so I stayed there that summer. I went back in the summer of 81, 82, ultimately 80, and then I and then I, I graduated school in 83 and went back full time. But because I had nurtured during the summer of 81, 82, I nurtured some relationships. In fact, in the summer of 1982, and a lot of your listeners may not even recognize this, and you probably won't even remember this, but 1982, were you even born in 1982? 79. Oh, you were born in, oh, you're a graduate of high school. So, uh, <laughs> 1982, uh, we had just come through the Jimmy Carter years. Ronald Reagan was just president, had been elected president. They just passed the Reagan era tax cuts and all that stuff. Inflation was running at 13%. Unemployment was 11%. And interest rates were 21%. For everyone out there who thinks it can't happen, trust me, it can happen. And I quite honestly, I fully expect that's going to happen again after what we've done, but we could talk about that afterwards. It was the summer of 1982 when the economy was at its worst in terms of interest rates, unemployment, and, and uh, inflation. And the Dow Jones was trading at 800. Today it's trading at 38,000, but then it was trading at 800. And I went back in the summer of 82 to go work for the guy that I had spent the summer of 81 with, who put his arm around me when I got back to New York. And he said to me, I can't have you. I, not because he didn't want me, not because he didn't, you know, I wasn't doing a job. He could not afford that extra expense of having a summer intern there on the floor of the exchange. Now let's put it in perspective. I was making $125 a week. So it was basically $500 a month is what this guy was paying me. And he put his arm around me and said, I cannot do it. I, I, I get it. I mean, I understood because times were tough. The economy was a disaster. And people were not investing their money in the stock market. Because think about this for a minute. If interest rates are 21%, think about that for one second. Today, they're zero. If interest rates are 21% and you had any money at all to invest, you could buy IBM or General Electric, which are fine U.S. companies. Or you could take your money and go to the bank and give your money to the banker and he's going to put it in a CD and you are going to earn 21% on your money, risk-free, guaranteed, sleep at night, not a care in the world. Okay, exactly right. You're not going to buy GE and IBM because there's all this risk, right? Stocks go down in price. And so in 1982, that's exactly what happened is that all this money was in CDs, right? So when this guy said to me he couldn't have me, I thought to myself, okay, Two things can happen here. This could either be the summer I go back to Cape Cod and end up as a lifeguard, or I can go around the floor to those relationships which I had started to nurture two years ago and have a conversation. And so I did exactly that. And I went around to, uh, to a number of other independent floor brokers that I had gotten to know and you know, uh, gotten to go out drinking with and establish a relationship and all that stuff. And this one guy was probably 45 years old and he's, and, and he is the salt of the earth. I love, I love, love, love this guy. Today he's 80 years old and he's retired and he lives out in uh, the, uh, the tip of Long Island. But I love this man. So I went over to him and we were talking. He gives me this big bear hug when he saw me. Oh, welcome back. How excited, blah, blah. His business was thriving. He had a different business than the other guy. But one way or the other, his business was thriving. 
And so I said to him, you know, Miss Latham, I'm I'm probably leaving. I'm not staying because Dougie can't afford to have me. His business is going down and he just can't afford to have me. And so I really came to say goodbye, unless, of course, there's a conversation we could have. So he puts his arm around me and he said to me, hey, kid, you know what the symbol for IBM is? I go, yes, sir, it's IBM. You know the difference between an eighth and a quarter? I go, yes, sir, it's 12 and a half cents. You know the difference between a buy and a sell? I go, yes, sir. He goes, it's 250 a week, okay. <laughs> 250 a week, I just got a friggin' raise. And I was clicking my heels. And I took that job. I started the next day. And I stayed there to the summer of 1982. Now, what you also won't know, you won't remember this, and maybe a lot of your listeners won't. It was Tuesday, August 17th, 1982, when uh, Paul Volcker was Fed chair. Ronald Reagan was president. Economic policy had decided that they were going to break the back of unemployment and inflation, and they were going to break the back of interest rates. Um, and so Paul Volcker came out in a surprise Fed announcement. Now, understand, that's key. Because in 1982, the Fed never made surprise announcements. In fact, first of all, because there was no internet and there was no Yahoo and LinkedIn and Twitter and all that shit. News traveled the way it used to travel, in the newspapers and by telephone, right? Unlike today. So the rumor had been on that Monday night that the Fed was going to make the surprise announcement on Tuesday morning. And everybody kind of shrugged it off because the Fed only made announcements on Thursday mornings at 8.30. So Tuesday was like, it was like, yeah, right, okay. As 8.30 approached, you could feel everyone on the floor kind of, you know, just kind of waiting. Because remember, there's no televisions on the floor. There's no radios on the floor. There's no internet in 1982. So the only way anyone on the floor, the New York Stock Exchange was going to understand or realize if anything happened was when the phone rang and somebody, an account on the outside, Goldman, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, agent, whoever, was going to call up the, 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 the clerk. I was a clerk at the time, or the broker on the floor and say, this just happened or whatever, right? That's the way the news used to travel. And at about 8.30 and 30 seconds, every phone on the New York Stock Exchange lit up and they were these big old institutional uh, steel phones. And they had the push button, six buttons on each side. So each phone had potentially 12 buttons. And you had two phones stacked. My, 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 my desk was as wide as my shoulders. I stood up. The desk came up here right, right up to my chest. The phone rang and you picked it up. And all of a sudden, everyone started screaming, did you see what the Fed just did? You see, no, I didn't see what the Fed just did. What the did the Fed just do? Well, they cut interest rates by 10%. Now, 10% was two percentage points. So it went from 21 to 19%, still high. That moment in history is what ignited the greatest bull market that this country and the world has ever seen. It was August, Tuesday, August 17, 1982, when, when the Dow moved, get a load of this, moved by 4.5%. Four and a half percent in 1982 meant that the Dow was up 38 points. 38, because it was you know 800. It was eight. It was trading at 800, right? So four and a half percent went up 38 points. Now think about four and a half percent today. Four and a half percent today. Four and a half percent at 38,000, right? Uh, would be a big move. Well, that was a big move then, right? Because it was a percentage move, and the volume exploded. You know, it went from 30 million shares a day, what we used to do, to 138 million shares a day, all by hand, all by pen and paper. It was the most incredible moment in history, and it was one of those moments in my career that uh, you know was seared in my memory like it was yesterday. Like I can feel the the sweat running down my back right now as I as I remember exactly what it was like at that moment. But it was that excitement that just that, that took a hold of me and never let go. And so because, and this goes back to making that decision in 1980, the one that I almost said no to when I decided and said yes to, that decision changed the course of my life. And so if I had still said no and I never went there, I don't even know what I would have been doing today. 
I, because I had no idea what I wanted to do, right? I was a 19-year-old kid that had What did I know what I wanted to do? And so that decision forever changed the course of my life and allowed me to nurture the relationships in this business and build my life and get involved and, you know, get involved with the exchange, get involved down in Washington, D.C., you know, in regulatory stuff and, and technology stuff, and then nurture every one of those relationships. So I, I guess the key to the question is you got to nurture your relationships, right? Yeah. All my businesses have gotten so much better as I network, as I show that I'm helpful to other people, Correct. not just a taker. And so if I kind of piece everything together, because I love that story, I think it's amazing. And I'm also really curious to see what your take is of where we're going to be going with, I mean, the, the Fed can't slash rates again. They can't go to negative 10 well, where they're paying money. They, they can. They, they can, no, essentially. They I don't know if they will, but. <laughs> well, in so, fact, if you think about it, real rates are already negative. If you think about it, because 10 year rates are yep. one, two, four and inflation as of the last reading is running at 5%. Uh, that's low. So rates are negative right by now. 4%. Yeah. Right. If we round everything together, it sounds like you took, took an opportunity. You said, you know what? I'm going to try it out. It's better to try it out and then realize later that it wasn't the right opportunity opportunity or it'd be the fantastic right opportunity. From that opportunity, you went and actually networked with the people that you've already had good relationships with. And that's led into the next position. And then from there, the rest is history because you were able to continue to network, continue to create relationships and nurture those relationships. I think those are huge tips for everybody. So if we're wanting to get into the, I mean, do we just go to the stock exchange and say, you know, find somebody and look for an internship? Not anymore. And that's part of the reason, that is exactly part of the reason I pivoted. Because that job that I did in 1980 and the job as a clerk and then the job as I did as a broker for from 1985 till 2019 no longer exists, right? It no longer exists. There used to be 5,500 people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Now it's they get uh, run every day. Robin Hood on your phone. <laughs> Don't even get me started about Robin Hood. That's a whole other conversation. We're going to have to have a separate YouTube for that. But one way or the other. That job as an institutional floor broker that existed for, you know, over 250 years no longer exists. Technology has completely destroyed that job, right? And so the 5,500 people that used to work on the floor of the exchange to make it work and trade stocks and all that stuff today operates with less than 200 people and a bunch of computers. And so if you walk down on the floor today, if it's, it's almost like this. Listen, did you hear that? There's nothing. There's nothing to hear. That's right. There's nothing to hear because there is no more open outcry. There is no more screaming and yelling. There is no more negotiating for the best price at any moment in time. It's all happening electronically. And so if anybody wants to see what it's actually like, there's plenty of movies, but one movie that comes to my mind is Trading Places. They're just screaming and yelling. It's just so much fun to see that happening. And it literally doesn't happen anymore. No, but and, and, that, and Trading Places actually was in the commodities pits out in Chicago. Although that screaming and yelling was kind of what it was like. But I would suggest to you, there's a movie that came out in 1983. I think it was called Wall Street, right? I remember um, Wall Street. But that actually was about uh, about stocks and about trading and about what's that famous line in Wall Street? It's like, uh, what? A, anyway, that particular movie was much more representative of what the floor Got was like it. at that moment in time, right? Yeah. So what would we do if we want to get into financial services? Is there anything we should do now as we're thinking about doing that? Sure. Because the financial services industry is alive and well. It's just different 
right? It's different from the financial services industry I joined. There are so many different aspects of financial, uh, of the financial services industry, right? So now I'm on the wealth management side, right? Kind of the high net worth and ultra high net worth wealth management side it was not where I was for 38 years of my life. I was on the institutional side. Yet I took all that knowledge, that institutional knowledge about how institutions manage their money, how they manage risk and brought that to, brought that to the retail side, right? And so that's part of the education that I do, right? Cause I love to educate people on the capital markets because I think it's important. I think places like the New York Stock Exchange are part of the fabric of this country. Um, and so, and so therefore there's something really significant about it, even though it's different today than it was in 1980. It's still, when you think of the New York Stock Exchange, you think of freedom, you think of capitalism, you think of money, you think of uh, opportunity, you think of, um, you think of freedom, in my mind. I mean, those are all the things I think of, right? And I think that the, uh, I, I think it's important for, you know, the generations behind me to understand the role of the capital markets, why the exchange exists, how it exists, what it, what it presents in terms of opportunities to create wealth, generate wealth, provide wealth for you, your family, your grandchildren, philanthropy, whatever you want to do with it, right? And so I spend a lot of time now, you know, talking about that. I spend a lot of time now helping people, helping people prepare. And, you know, it's not necessarily, uh, it's not, uh, yes, I have high net worth and high net worth clients, but you know, what's really interesting is that ever since the kind of the Robin Hood and the Robin Hood debacle that happened a couple of months ago and everyone's screaming and yelling, I've got younger people, the generations behind me that are now reaching out to me because, in fact, they want to understand better. They want to create a longer term plan. Yeah, OK, they want to trade some, too. That's fine. That, there's a separate fund for that. Go do your thing. But if you really want to build a long term plan, you know, you got to start when you're 20 or 25. Even if you start small, you got everyone's got to start somewhere. And I think that's the message, right? That's great. Now, I do want to jump into because. I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on the current situation with, I mean, I think inflation is way above 5%, but they're just saying, oh, it's transitory or, you know, anyways, they don't count everything that we as consumers count. But with inflation, you have record low, like literally no, no interest. Um, you see unemployment starting to go up. Like, what are your thoughts about this point forward? Like it was going to happen in well, it's like 2021, 2022 coming. Listen, so here's my fear about, uh, about where we are in terms of from a Fed perspective, right? We've been stimulating this economy since the crash, since the great financial crisis in 07. By the way, a financial crisis- and that means that printing was, money. Stimulating means uh, printing, printing money. money, yes. But the crash, and, and again, some of this is also misunderstood. The crash that happened in the stock market wasn't about stocks themselves, right? Stocks crashed, yes. But why did stocks crash? Because other parts of the economy crashed. And so, for instance, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, he had a housing secretary, uh, I forget what his name was, Az- uh, not Azar, uh, doesn't make a difference what his name was. They decided during the Clinton presidency that, you know, home ownership was the way for Americans, every American to build wealth and, and create stability and all that stuff. And so everyone was going to be able to buy a home and afford a home and blah, blah, blah. And it sounded great. And so what the administration did was they came to Wall Street, meaning they went to the investment banks. They didn't come to 11 Wall Street where I work. They went to the big investment banks and asked them to help create products that would allow for different types of mortgages, for different types of payment plans, for different types of qualifications, because the administration wanted to make home ownership part of the American dream, right? And it should be. And so Wall Street answered that call. The government asked them to create products, and so they created products. And the products worked fine. 
as long as the economy was as long as the economy was fine, right? They 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 didn't no one ever back tested them. And what happens if the economy starts to stall? Nobody did that. They just, you know, oh, if the economy continues to grow like this, these products are gonna be fine and everyone's gonna be happy and you know, everyone's gonna be wealthy. That worked until guess what? The global economy started to fail. You know, it started in Asia and then 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 uh, here in the States and then in, across in Europe. And then what happened is all those products that uh, that the big investment banks built started to fail. Now, if you guys have not seen the movie The Big Short, I would I would tell everyone you should go out and watch it because they do a very very good job in very layman's terms, kind of explaining what happened. But you should also read the book. The book is great as well, but the movie is the movie is equally as good. Right? The pressure on stocks came as a result of the failure of all those products that they created to help people buy houses, people who didn't have an income, people who couldn't afford it. You know, they got you in at a teaser rate. You wanted to go out and buy a $500,000 home, which you couldn't afford. But because they gave you a teaser rate of 2% for the first three years, the payment was $500. You go, oh, that's simple. Okay, that's great. But in the third year, the payment's going to go from 2% to 4.5%. And the payment's going to go from 500 to 750 And now suddenly you're getting squeezed a little bit. Uh, 750 I don't know if I can afford that. And then two, and then the year after that, it goes from 4.5% up to 6%. And then the payment goes to nearly $1,000. And now you're f- Right. Oh, sorry. I can't say that. And so now you're screwed because now, and so that is exactly what happened in the housing market. Right. Is that that those adjustable loans created pressure on everyone who bought houses who couldn't afford them. And then they started to collapse. But then what happened was those products, which were tradable, people used to buy and sell those mortgage backed products all day long. They were big money makers, and they had all the kinds of acronyms. They were CDSs and, and uh, mortgage-backed securities and mortgage-backed asset securities and ABSs and CDOs, and they all had different acronyms. But they were tradable items until they weren't, because when the economy started to fail, everyone said, screw it. I'm not buying that And so suddenly, the, that market freezes. So where do you go? If you're somebody that owns stocks and you own these products that are no longer trading... And you get nervous, you go, I need some money. Where do you go? Well, you can't sell the stuff you can't sell. So you sell, you sell the stuff you can sell. And what's that? That was stocks. And so you go to your computer. I need X amount of dollars. I'm going to go and I'm going to sell some of my General Electric. And you put an order in there, sell 10,000 shares of General Electric, bang, you hit the send button. And within 30 seconds, not only do you have an execution, but your money's already in the bank. But because you were doing it and he was doing it and she was doing it and everyone else was doing it, stocks plummeted, right? Because everyone got everyone got scared and afraid of, of what was happening in the mortgage side of the business. And so that was caused a collapse. That caused a great financial crisis of, of uh, 2007, 8, 9, and 10. And so the market came under real pressure, right? I mean, it collapsed, certainly down 60% over the course of you know, a year and a half. And... Uh, and it was ugly and it was painful and it was disastrous and it was scary and it was anxiety ridden and all that stuff. And it was. But when people when people found out that I worked on Wall Street, you know, Kenny works on Wall Street, you know, everyone was pointing the finger at me as if I was the one who created this problem. I'm like, you got it all wrong. I'm at the receiving end of this. I'm the guy who buys and sells the stocks. I wasn't the guy who created the products that failed, but everyone gets lumped in. But one way or the other, to answer your question about what should people do, there are a whole different bunch of opportunities today in the financial financial services space. And it starts with uh, quantitative analysis. It starts with automation. It starts with computer knowledge, right? I didn't have have any computer knowledge, nor did I need computer knowledge. There were no computers when I was, you know, 20 years old. So I had to use my head. 
like everybody else did. But today, it's all about automation and computers and technology. So anybody that wants to get involved in the financial services space today really needs to have even more than an economics degree or finance degree. They need to have a quantitative analysis degree. They need to understand how to write uh, you know, different different languages, right? Different computer languages. They need to understand how to write algorithms, how they interact. That That's what they need to do. And so today, if you go to the full New York Stock Exchange today, all the uh, the new generation of brokers that are on the floor are all these 25 to 35-year-olds that really sit behind a computer all day because it's all about the technology. It's not about economics and finance and supply and demand, not at all. And so... And that end of the business, that's what you would do. If you want to still become a research analyst, you're still going to do the same thing you would always do, right? You're going to become a research analyst. You're going to research stocks. And you're going to use technology to help you do that research, but you're still doing that research. Do you think that there's going to be some sort of a crash or correction here in the near future? It's been, what, 12 plus years since we've had a correction. And usually every cycle is every seven, eight years. But all of a sudden, it's been going on for 12 years. Do you think... From what you've seen back in 82, do you see anything like that happening now? Yes, I, I do. But I, but but I don't see a 60% correction in the market like we saw in 2007. Uh, I'm actually calling, I'm actually hoping, and, and you know, I'm hoping, because I am hoping, for a correction of anywhere from 7 to 10%, which really isn't even a correction. Anything, the market trades between 0 and 9% is considered just norm, within the normal trading band. It doesn't become a an official correction until it hits 10% or greater, right? So if the market sells off 9%, you haven't really entered a correction yet. It's still within the normal bands of trading. But if th- you're that down also doesn't account in also all the stimulus, all the, not stimulus, the, the, the printing of money that they're pumping into the system. So if it's at 9%, but they're pumping in that much more. Yeah, but the reason this correction is going to come is because they're not going to do that anymore. That's the reason this is going to come. Because as long as they keep printing, the market's never going to sell off. So that's why for the last 12 years, we have not seen any correction because they just keep dumping money into the system, right? And because rates are zero. So here you go yeah. again. If you, got, if you got money to invest, are you going to put it in the bank and earn zero? No, you're going to earn not. zero on your money or are you going to put your money to work in stocks where the only place you're going to get a yield? And so as long as they keep printing money and rates remain at zero, there is no alternative, right? Tina, there is no alternative. Yesterday, the headline hit the tape. Because tomorrow we're going to get the FOMC minutes from July, and I think those are going to reveal that there's this division in the Fed thought, right, in the Fed Open Market Committee, the different members on the committee. There's starting to be a kind of a crack in the thinking. Some of them are much more aggressive now saying, okay, enough is enough, while there are others going, no, 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 right? So there's the doves and the hawks. The hawks are the ones that want to change policy. The doves are the ones that want to keep it the same. But I think what you were going to see tomorrow is that there's that division coming up, and then the market may have overreacted to just the headline when that comes out. So I think what they did yesterday was very was very classic Fed. They knew that this potential information is going to, going to be out there for the public on Wednesday. And so they were trying to intercept and create their own narrative. So yesterday, they, in fact, came out and said... The Fed is seriously weighing starting the tapering process because then tomorrow when you see that in the in, in the minutes, you're going to, okay, that's old news. Yeah, we found that out the other day. So then the market should not overreact. They also made it very clear. And I don't necessarily think the market's going to correct because they're going to start to taper. The market's going to correct when they start to raise rates more so than when they start to taper. Because with rates still at zero, even if they're not pumping money into the place, if they keep rates at zero, you have the same problem. Where are you going to invest your money and earn a return on it? Well, the people are going to say Bitcoin or Dogecoin. Well, okay, they, they <laughs> could do that. 
But talk about joking. risk, I'm just they could absolutely You would not it. put it into a bank. That was literally just throwing your money away. Well, if inflation's at 5%, you're literally losing money all the time. Uh, of course you are. You're losing money every day. That It's just sitting in a bank account. Yep. And so until they raise rates is going to be, I think that's when you're going to see the adjustment come. Now, I'm not suggesting that the economy is not recovering and that, you know, the economy um, isn't robust. It is. It is when you look at um, uh, when you look at the inputs currently, right? At zero rates, the economy is very robust. If they start raising rates and drawing money out of the stock, uh, out of out of stocks and into more, f- more bonds and more fixed income investments, that they're going to pay a steady rate of return and offer stability, much more so than stocks do. Then they're going to change the inputs, and if you change the inputs, then the output has to change, right? And so, therefore, I think that's when you're going to see. Now, depending on how they tell that story. And it's all about creating that narrative. And that's why I will say Jay Powell has done a very good job because he has done what he said he's done. He's been, he's been whether or not you want to believe he's been fully transparent, he certainly has had a number of different opinions out there, right? He's had both the Hawks out there telling their side of the story and the Doves out there telling their side of the story. And he's been taking the temperature of how the market and how investors react to each story, right? If you've paid attention to that, you would have seen that. I write about this in the daily note that I write. I, 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 this is one of the other things I do when I write this, this daily note, right, which is a free note. I don't charge for it, but it's out there one way or the other. But I think you're going to see a, a bigger correction when and if they start to raise rates, and especially if they start to raise rates ahead of where they're telling you they're going to raise rates. Right now, they're still not raising rates until mid-2023. I, yeah. I think that's bull****. I think rates go up before mid-2023. I probably, yeah, as soon as... And, you're going to see a definite shift in everything once that happens. We've gotten so much good stuff. Now, Kenny, tell me, I have, we're going to jump into the rapid fire round. So the first question is, what is one bit of advice that you would give your younger self? It, it could be business, it could be life, anything like that. That's such a, for me, that's a complicated question. But I would say is, is, is have faith in yourself and don't be afraid, right? And, and because, here's a, because here's what I'll tell you. When I was... How old are you? 42. Okay, so before that. So when I was, say, 30, right, when my second daughter was born and my career was just starting to take off and everything was great, we just bought this house and now I had two beautiful kids and blah, blah, blah. If somebody had asked me then to write the story of what my life was going to be, I would have written a story. And what's interesting is that the story I would have written is not the story of my life my life turned out very different than the story I would have written. And so that sometimes causes angst and it causes frustration and it causes, um, you know, difficult times. But I think, so I think all that helps you to grow as well. I mean, as painful as it is to go through it, um, it does help you to grow. But what you can't be is you can't be afraid. You can't be afraid. You got to stand up every day and put one foot in in front of the other and you have to make that change. That's great, Kenny. Okay. What is your favorite book? You might have mentioned it already. It might be the one, but it could be business or nonfiction, basically nonfiction, but business or life. Yeah. So I actually, there's a couple of them that I really like, but the one, the one that I told you about, and I just, I don't want to, I don't want to, there's, there's two, and they're, these ones are both business stories, right? So there's the one that's too big to fail that was written by Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's the, uh, the CNBC uh, personality. But the one that was written by Ben Bernanke, and it's called The Courage to Act. And it's a memoir of the crisis in the aftermath was an unbelievable story, right? Because it's told from the perspective of being Fed chair at a time when the world, the financial markets were collapsing. Now, away from that, you know, I also like a bunch of the Michael uh, um, uh, the Michael Lewis books, right? 
The Big Short was one of his books. Uh, Flash Boys was another one of his books. Now, what's interesting about Flash Boys is there's a lot of errors in Flash Boys. But if you're uh, if you're not in the industry and you read Flash Boys, you're going to think, oh, sh- how did this happen? But when I read Flash Boys, I go, okay, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Just the way that he describes it. So, you know, what's interesting, the book was entertaining because it's not a heavy book to read. It was entertaining, but there are a lot of things in the way he describes how the market works and how stocks work and what the conversation might have been at that moment in time in that stock. They don't make sense. To somebody who's in the business, when you read it, you go, nah, this doesn't make sense. The way he's describing it, it would never have happened that way. But if you're someone like you that doesn't know and you're reading it, you'd sit there and go, holy sh- how does that happen? Well, it doesn't really happen. But <laughs> his books, uh, Michael Lewis's books are good from a, you know, because part of it is part like Liar's Poker. You know, I think it was his first book. That was about the Solomon uh, uh, Bond uh, crisis back in the 19, uh, early 1980s. Those are very good books. But those first two that I told you about, uh, Too Big to Fail and then and then The Courage to Act. Is re- I mean, if you want, if you really want like a heavy book that that is so enlightening and so eye-opening in terms of understanding what was happening in the world, what was happening in not only the U.S. economy and the U.S. markets, but what was really happening around the world. And and what you realize is that the global financial system came very, very, very close to the edge. People don't hmm. really understand how close it came and and what it potentially would have looked like. And so you know, in that book, when you when you read about what every central bank around the world had to do in order to save it, it's all very true. It's all very true, and Man. it's told from the perspective of Ben Bernanke, who was at the Sorry, at the helm. Yeah. And so, it was a fantastic book. Man, Kenny, you give us so much insight, so many things to think about. I know people are going to re- want to reach out to you and even get your your daily writing that you do. How would they be able to find you online? There's a couple of ways. You can go to my Twitter, which is just my Twitter handle is just my name at Kenny Polkari. You can find me on YouTube, which is my YouTube channel is Kenny Polkari Media, and you can subscribe to my note by going to my website, which is just KennyPolkari.com, which is my personal website, separate from my business website. Um, and scroll down to the bottom of the front page and there's a big box there that just says subscribe. Just put your email address in there and hit subscribe. And then uh, it goes out, you know, it goes out via MailChimp every morning about you. I send it out in the morning at about seven, seven o'clock, maybe seven fifteen. Right. I get up at three thirty in the morning and I you know, spend three hours writing it, putting my thoughts together and writing it. That was born out of the crisis. Right. That was born out of the out of the financial crisis, because when the markets were just imploding in Eight in two thousand nine and two thousand and ten, um, I started to I started to just put my my thoughts down on paper, and uh, and I write the way I speak, right? So it's not written like from an analytical point of view, like you know I'm a Harvard grad that's you know that's trying to show you look I work at Goldman I'm an analyst look how good I can write that's bull. I write like I talk, right? And I take my forty years of experience and I just lay it out. And what people should know, and uh, and I guess you know because I've I've sent you now a couple of them. But what people should know is when they read this, they're going to see the headline because I give it a headline every day. But then I say, and try the risotto or try the apricot marinated chicken thighs. You scratch your head and you go, okay, what's up with that? Well, because I'm Italian. I love to cook. I grew up cooking. It's a passion of mine. It's relaxing for me. I enjoy cooking. So I took this financial services newsletter, the blog that I write every day. And I end it every day with a different recipe, right? So I t- and it's and the recipes are like you go into your grandmother's house, right? They're they're home style. They're not fancy. They're, they're not these fancy French recipes that give you you know this much meat and one string bean and all that. It's not like that at all. It's much more 
home style. It's like feel good cooking. You feel when you read them and you and you listen to me, especially on my YouTube. When I give you the recipe on my YouTube, after I give you the whole financial thing, um, you feel like you know you're coming into your grandmother's house. So, and that's been the funny part about it is it's because of the food that the note has taken off the way the way it's taken off. Right, it now gets picked up gets picked up by Bloomberg. It gets picked up by this European financial services site and gets reposted in its entirety. It gets, you know, it goes, it gets mailed out directly. I mean, I email it out directly to over 8,000 people. And then I don't know if I send it to you, you could send it on to another 10 people. I don't even know. Awesome. Well, Kenny, thank you so much for your time to be on the show. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Today's episode has been brought to you by the Real Estate Wealth Builders Membership. That's the membership that I founded teaching people how to quit their J-O-B by investing in real estate rental properties. Now, Real Estate Wealth Builders is your place to learn how to invest in real estate with five different masterclass courses group coaching with me and a private student community where we all work together, all the tools and the discounts, all the resources and everything that you need to quit your J-O-B by investing in real estate. Now, I do want to show you how to do this completely for free. If you want to learn about investing in real estate for free, I want to get you my free real estate investing course. Text the word rental to 33777. That's R-E-N-T-A-L to 33777 so you can see how you can quit your job that J-O-B by investing in real estate. I'll show you how to find properties, how to use other people's money to buy properties, and how to scale the business to be successfully unemployed just like I did. Now, did you also know that there are video versions of each and every single episode on the Successfully Unemployed show? Well, I did record every single one of these for you. I recorded them for you so you will be able to learn from the experts themselves, see what they're doing, see everything that they are talking about on this show visually and all their examples, all their slides, all their pictures that they even draw. Everything is on there. Go to successfullyunemployed.co forward slash YouTube. Or if you just go to YouTube and type in successful unemployed, more than likely you're going to find me. So successfullyunemployed.co forward slash YouTube. And I would truly appreciate it if you subscribe to Successfully Unemployed on YouTube and wherever you're listening to this podcast, subscribe to this show so that you can always get every bit of new information on how to quit your J-O-B. Also, if you got anything out of the show, Share it with just one person. Share it with just one person so that they can see the light that it is so much better to not work a job, be successful, unemployed, and be your own boss. All right, guys, this is it for today's show. I will see you next week. See ya. See ya.